Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, Becky, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Could you just tell our audience about your introduction to the Independent Baptist Movement? My name is Becky McCauley, but I have been, up until the last year, Becky Calvert. My introduction to the IFB, I was um, raised in a preacher's home. My father got saved when I was four. He had been a farmer in Indiana, and a brother-in-law was concerned at the breakdown of his marriage and brought his preacher to see him. And my father accepted Christ. And our family then moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where my father attended Bible college and became a pastor. So I grew up in a pastor's home. I was saved, like I said, at the age of four. I love Jesus. I still, I am in love with the Lord. I love serving Jesus. And from a young age, that just became very important to me. And it has never changed, um, my love for the Lord. So how would you, how would you, in the, uh, in the height of your involvement with the, with the independent Baptist movement, if someone asks, you know, what are you involved in or what is, how would you describe your church or your faith? What would you have said to them? I would have said that my faith is really the most important thing in my life. And it still is. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. He saved me. And I am to this day, my beliefs and my doctrine is Baptist. However, the functioning and the organization of the IFB itself is not where I choose to worship. However, my faith is still, to this day, the most important part of my life. Right. So it sounds like you've you've taken a lot of the there's been a lot of the spirituality that's kind of survived, but obviously you, you reference some split organizationally. Can you tell me what started causing that fracture or what it was that you first noticed that started chipping away at your desire to be involved with the, the actual movement itself? Oh, of course. Yes. Well, I was 
raised in a preacher's home. I was married to a preacher from a very young age, really too young of an age. Um, And I was not given choices or asked what I thought or what I wanted ever. I was told what I was to do and given a list of rules. And um, there was no thought involved. There was no choice involved. It was you do this and this and this, and that will please God. And for a long time, that was enough for me. And then I began realizing that it was killing me. It was making me unhealthy and unsafe. And when I started asking questions, that was frowned upon and that was not welcome at all. Right. Right. And it, it, I know you, uh, you shared a little bit of your story with me before um, we hopped on the podcast and I know you mentioned um, it seems like a lot of your story actually begins around 17 when your, your parents, it seems pretty much arranged a marriage for you. Can you talk about that a little bit and what that, what that was like? Sure. I was, um, I graduated from college at a very young age. I had just turned 16 and I really was too young to go to college. So I traveled with an evangelist and his family for one year and provided special music for their services. And during that year, my father met um, Dr. Bud Calvert at a conference. They were introduced by a mutual friend who told my dad about Bud and said, oh, he's got a son who's single. At the time, his son was single, had graduated from college and was living at home. And obviously they wanted a spouse for him. And their desire was someone obviously who loved the Lord and who had been raised in church, but specifically someone who had not been to college and didn't have connections or friends, which should have been alarming to me. And it wasn't. Right. So, so what was that dating process like? And you can, you can feel free to to take this as far down the the road into the story as you want. But what was that quote unquote courtship relationship like? What can you describe that to me? Well, oh, absolutely. It was not healthy. But again, I was a seventeen-year-old girl. I was totally dedicated to doing God's will for my life and obeying my parents. Because in my mind at the time, that's how I was right with God, was by being submissive and obedient. The only dating in quotation marks that we had was writing letters, talking on the phone, which at that point, no one had cell phones. So we didn't talk on the phone very much. It was mostly letters. And um, I had a trip to meet his family. He had a trip to meet mine. So we were only physically together in six months of courtship, maybe six weeks, wow. if that, before we were husband and wife. So I had no idea or clue what I was getting into. I thought I did, but I didn't. So so how long was it after this period until you guys were actually married? You said six? Six months. Six months. We met in February. We married in August. And we were only together physically six weeks. And that's a generous um assessment you're rounding up with those with those time periods mm-hmm. yeah so I was living in Texas he was in Virginia at the time of our courtship so come the come the time of the wedding was the relationship rocky at first was it was it how did how did how did that relationship play out over the over those next couple weeks it was not months? rocky it was just I was naive I was so eager to please 
they, I had been a pastor's daughter, like I said. My father always pastored small churches, um, and I had traveled with an evangelist. Most of our meetings were in smallish churches. My ex and his dad pastored a very large church. They averaged a thousand attendance on Sunday. So I was in awe of them. And uh, it just was like, oh, these people are the bee's knees and I'm so lucky. So I was trying to please them thinking, you know, I'm, this is a big, a big move up for me. Right. So in, so most of the realization of the oddness of the situation was hindsight. It's looking back in the oh, moment absolutely. you were you absolutely. were bought in and sold out to it. Yes, that was a very good way to put that. That's exactly what happened. Hmm. And made to feel that that um, this would be pleasing to the Lord, which was my only desire at that point. Right. So, so what what changed that mindset then? Was it, you know, was it just a little bit of length of time with that? I know as you get a little further on some of the encounters with his, you know, there were encounters with uh, his father. What, what was the moment where you said like, Oh, something's not right. And like, I'm, I'm not in a healthy position. Eric, it took a long time and I'm ashamed to say I was naive and I kept thinking that I could fix it. I could fix it. I could fix it. One very important thing. As far as the relationship or. Exactly, exactly. That I knew, I knew things weren't quite the way they ought to be. But very early on, he let me know I was not to share anything with anybody, not even my mother. I didn't have a good relationship with my family from the day that I married him, which is not normal or healthy, but I couldn't question him because that wasn't pleasing to God. It was very cultish. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we, we began having children right away. We were married in 1990. My first baby came in 92. Okay. And once I had children, I was going nowhere because I was going to raise my kids. Right. So in essence, I was trapped and I knew it. And mm. so I just put my head down and made the best of what I knew was a, not a good situation. So, um, so on your so uh, within this time frame and I hope I'm not shortening things too much so it seems like you had children and then immediately your husband was unavailable doing ministry things and you were kind of left to fend for yourself is that kind of a right depiction Well that is very correct and I'm glad you bring that up because it was a typical IFB thing and in larger churches this seems to be the theme is that there's a list of rules for all the staff and the staff wives I was expected to be at Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday morning church, Sunday night church, choir practice, Wednesday evening church, visitation once a week, and entertain because I was a preacher's wife whenever he thought that that was a good idea. Uh, And of course, my ex was pastoring the Spanish church, so I also was involved in diligently studying and trying to become bilingual. I didn't speak a word of Spanish when we were married. Right. So I was sitting in services that I couldn't understand with people that looked different from me. It was just overwhelming. Um, and, but and I that, was busy trying to do, go ahead. And that was a point of contention between the two of you in that he would constantly be mocking and 
kind of writing you over. Oh, he made fun of my Spanish at every opportunity. Instead of being proud of me when I tried, he would point out the flaws and what I pronounced wrong in the song that I sang or, or just, just making light of what I had tried instead of being proud of me. Um, yeah, it, he would mock me publicly. As unhealthy as that relationship was with Troy, I think it's safe to say the relationship with Troy's parents was probably even more so unhealthy. Um, can oh, you share a little bit regarding um, Bud Calvert and kind of the relationship that kind of started getting derailed with him and what that what that situation was like? Again, I was very young. I was very impressionable, and I was very eager to please. They they gave off the air that they were sophisticated and the epitome <laughs> of independent fundamental Baptist. Um, look what they had built, what they had done. And they would right. constantly say to me that I was nothing, that they made me what I was. So I just felt it was my duty to please them and to try to find a way to fit into this family and so when my ex-father-in-law began coming over to visit me, when my husband began traveling to Latin America and doing preaching engagements, I didn't speak up to anyone because I didn't dare. No one, I was told, right. there are three of us, there's one of you. No one will believe you. So I just kept my mouth shut. So you essentially had nobody. You didn't have a friend circle or... A no, and about that same time, when my daughter... My, our first child was born. My parents went to the mission field and lived in Romania for 18 years. So I truly was alone. My siblings were younger than myself. They were in college. I, of course, didn't have a cell phone. I couldn't afford long distance. I would call my parents. We had scripted, timed phone calls. I believe it was probably once a week, and it was just very expensive because I was living on a shoestring trying to buy diapers and formula. I was totally all alone. And of course, when I went to church, I was in a Spanish church and I still at that point could not communicate. I was flying between the nursery and trying to get this keyboard to play for the services. And it's, it's safe to say I didn't have conversations or relationship with anyone at that point. No one. Vulnerable to, as you described in your statement, it just left you vulnerable to be groomed by his father. Was, was, that, a, was that a very lengthy process of just him testing the limits? Was it something where he just felt very comfortable with you? What was that process like? If you He yeah. felt very comfortable because he was in control and he knew it. Um, of course, our daughter was born only two years after we had been married. So that's about the length of the grooming. And then he began molesting me and that went on for at least six years. Um, wow. I wouldn't have dared have to speak up. I, I knew better. Um, and again, who would I have spoken to? <laughs> there was no one. Right. I was well, on my own and I knew it. By them. You know, you'd been my family by was the out of my family. life and he had, it was terrible. And again, I, w I want you to share as much as you're comfortable with, but I am curious because I know we talked before recording about, you know, wanting to do this largely in part to give um, victims the, the, sense of strength to speak out or to be able to identify what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so I don't necessarily want to dive into the specifics of the, 
the actual trauma, but as far as the grooming process, when we say the phrase grooming, what does that look like? What, what, if someone maybe is in this situation and doesn't realize that's what's happening to them, how would you, how would you describe the grooming process and what should people look out for? Maybe parents with their daughter, maybe, you know, someone who's actually in this situation. What are some big warning signs mm. that you look back and see now that you wish you would have, you know, you wish you would have been able to identify or that someone around you that cared would have been able to identify? Complimenting my appearance, taking liberties with touching me and being comfortable um, just for example, asking me to sit on his lap, so inappropriate for a man who is middle-aged, married, right. with an attractive 18-year-old daughter-in-law. No, no, no. Right. Um, I would have done anything to please, not just him, his family. When I was told to sing, when I was told to play, when I was told to go um, you know, do cleaning jobs to earn money to buy a home. Oh, no, staff wives don't work. You have to, you know but I had to produce income. So I mm. taught piano lessons. I cleaned houses. I, the grooming was, and anytime he was around, he was the center of the universe. Right. Truly. And I'm assuming Our days that... off as a couple, we, you know what, if they said, we want to go have a picnic, we dropped what we were doing. We went and had a picnic. We lived at their beck and call continually. And did you feel like this was how the entire church operated with him? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He was God in that place with a little G. God with a little G. And uh, you mentioned to um, losing your losing your voice through some of this, and just the the amount of emotional stress you were under. How can you talk about that period of your life and and how oh, long that, that period I was, went on? I was twenty years old, Eric. I had just had my first child. My parents had left for the mission field, and of course, we weren't on very good speaking terms. Um, because I, I was very uncomfortable. I knew that my husband didn't like my family, didn't want me to talk to my family. So anytime that I did communicate with him, I felt disloyal and, and like I was sinning, but they were my parents. And of course I wanted to talk to them. And at that same time, after my daughter's birth was when my ex-father-in-law began having relationship, sexual relationship with me. And I'll never forget it because I have always had a strong multi-octave voice and it was shattered. I had three, literally three notes that I could sing. It was just, it was horrific. And that was when I wrote one of the songs that I think is the best I've ever written, God is Good, but I couldn't even sing it. I didn't have the range to even sing that simple song. And so I began, and we didn't have any money. We lived from shoestring to shoestring every month because my husband at the time was a spender and gave exorbitantly to the church. Um, so I, <laughs> I had cleaning jobs and piano lessons. I taught probably 35 lessons a week, and I found a voice teacher because I just could not accept the fact that I wasn't going to sing. I had always sung. That's who I was. But I, I know that that's when all of the abuse truly started because it was traumatizing to me in the extreme. I also developed arthritis at that point. Mm. Um, my body was just, my body was screaming, help get, me, help me. To get and, you out of that situation. And of course, by that time, my second child was on his way. I was going nowhere and I knew it. So, so how many years exactly did, did all of this go on? Cause I know the, 
the way that things started coming out was a pretty was a pretty unique event. But but how many years up until the accident was this going on? About six, and I just put my head down and lived. And of course, by then our second son was born, and we had moved from our townhouse to a single-family home. And I was, I was working like just a dog. There was no other way to say it. Mm-hmm. So I had gone one morning to the hardware store to get paint because I was going to paint the kitchen and put up a border and had a terrible, terrible accident and was in between life and death for weeks, mm-hmm. um, in a coma for two weeks. And of course had a tracheostomy, a G tube. Um, and we didn't know if I was even going to live. And my parents of course came back from Romania. Um, and that was a whole nother hideous nightmare. And, um, my ex-father-in-law wanted to disconnect the life support, but my brother was notified by a friend of what had happened. And he drove all night from Knoxville, Tennessee. And he got there and said, no, you cannot disconnect her. And so, um, they left the machines going. And so, I did pull through. And and during that process of recovery, when you you were you were just speaking very openly and clearly um, regarding things that had happened to your to your family, um, and the the crazy thing to me is that through all that, the the accusation pushed against you was that your mom was brainwashing you while she was in town trying to visit right. you after an accident. Can you talk about that and how that kind of... Oh, absolutely. And of course, at the time, I had no understanding. and I just believed what I was told because that was the safe thing for me to do. However, in subsequent years, I went back and spoke to the physician who was my attending physician. And he said, oh, um, my ex had requested a, a a restraining order against my mother. It's important to tell you that at the same time, my father had kidney stones and he he was admitted to another hospital, a different hospital. Here they are in the United States from Romania and she is on her own. My dad was in one hospital, I was in another and she is, I mean, in a hostile, hostile environment. And all of a sudden she comes to the hospital to see me and there's a restraining order and they will not let her in my room. Wow. Well, I was told for years by my ex, of course, that, oh, the doctor had to get the restraining order because your mother was brainwashing you and it was so horrible that the doctor, well, Eric, that's not true. A doctor cannot get a restraining order. It must be the family requesting the restraining order. So my ex did request a restraining order. Of course, the doctor facilitated it because my ex demanded it, but it was not the doctor at all. And I believed that lie for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And, um, (laughs) so it was, it was just all manipulated to isolate me and to keep me where I was. And the isolation was was such a weakened, I was in such a weakened, vulnerable state. I had the mind of a child. I was recovering from a major, major accident. My pelvis had been broken in four places. My neck was broken. My foot was broken. And I had three small children. It was years before I could even wrap my head around any of this. In the, the isolation 
after this event, after some, you started speaking a little openly, you know, just because you, your body was truly, again, your mind was letting you say what you needed to say. Um, (laughs) the, the, the Calvert's went to isolate you even further than you already were. Um, and, and one of the, one of the stigmas that I, I definitely want to talk about is this accident left you with a, um, with an imbalance that, that allowed you to get depressed a lot easier. And even, even without the chemical imbalances after a traumatic accident like that, I can only assume that there's already some layer of that. Um, but oh, I, it was hideous. Well, just on one, uh, just a simple thing, but my body was so broken, Eric, that I didn't even have a cycle for about, I don't know, six to eight months because I was fighting to survive. And then when it started, it was just, it was really horrific. Right. So all of those things together. And then, you know, of course, every doctor I saw, and I, I mean, I just was in and out of doctor's offices for months and months and months. They all said the same thing. You need an antidepressant. You have a chemical imbalance. You need help to just, and my ex wouldn't allow it. Well, I was so desperate and so ill and I was trying to raise children. And he, of course, demanded that I work and earn income. I was in church five times a week or more. Um, so I would start the antidepressants and he would ask me and ask me and ask me. And I finally got so sick of having to deal with him that I would just stop. Because, of course, we had no boundaries. Everything in my life was subject to his scrutiny. And I had no privacy, no boundaries of any kind. Um, so I would stop and be suicidal. And it, it was just a horrible, horrible existence. And one thing, and this is fairly common within a lot of IFB churches that I've encountered, but the the reasons given for not taking antidepressants or any medication for things like this is they blame you for being not spiritual enough or not having enough faith. And, oh, right. And was that was that constantly thrown your direction? Were, were you, did you? Oh, absolutely. He ordered um, Jim Berg's Quieting a Noisy Soul. Hmm. Now keep in mind, I had three little children at the time. I was teaching probably 35 lessons a week. I was going to church at least three times, four or five, running ladies meetings. I had to be in the Spanish church activities and the English church activities. So I had no time. I remember sitting in the car doing that study while I was having my car inspected because, of course, he was too busy to do the inspections or get the oil changed or do any of those things. I did all of that. So I would <laughs> I would do my Bible studies while I was waiting in lines in my car. And then when I would finish the study, which I did, I did what he told me to do, I would tell him, you know, I really i am still struggling. He'd say, well, you didn't do it right. Do it again. So I would do it again. I mean, this went on and on and on. And I'd finally get so sick and tired and knew I was in danger. I knew that I was in danger. And I would go back to the doctor and I would start the medicine again. And then we'd go through this whole process over again. But it was always my fault and my problem. And I was the one who was sinning. I was sinning. So after after the accident, and I mean, obviously, as if this isn't enough, you also are still dealing with the trauma that came from the relationship with Bud. Um, did mm. did Bud Calvert ever reach out or talk to you after this to 
either ensure you would stay quiet about what had happened or did he try to engage in anything after this event or did he pretty much just go silent after you he was silent speaking he was done with me he wanted eric he wanted me to be gone he wanted to disconnect the life support right and that didn't happen and so he just he just ignored me largely right um and and so you i mean you were you were in the the movement for quite a long time and to the point where the breaking point for you didn't happen until a major life event in the lives of one of your children can you talk about right that situation and what it was that that was finally like enough is enough i need to start calculating what my next step's going to be my ex's father decided he wanted to retire and I'm sure there's lots of stories there. I don't know, but he had, you know, finagled a deal with his deacons that he had retirement pay until he died. Um, and I think his wife had said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done. And he let Troy know he was going to be the next pastor, which gave him a free hand to continue just manipulating the church and the deacons and making sure everything happened that he wanted to have happen. Um, and again, I wasn't asked. I was told, this is what we're doing. I'm going to pastor this church. Oh, yes, this is God's will. Um, so we moved from the Spanish church to the English church. And I just I said, okay. Um, and of course, my ex-mother-in-law knew what her husband had done and what his feelings were towards me. Things got so bad, Eric, she would not even look at me. Mm-hmm. And even after he retired, they came to they came to all of the staff retreats. They came to the deacons retreats. I was subjected to absolute, just vicious behavior in front of everybody. Nobody ever said anything. And it was just, I can't describe to you the angst that I lived in constantly. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, nobody else would speak up. So I just put my head down and went. But I always knew, I mean, I just, I dreaded everything in my life. So my ex father-in-law retired my husband took over the church but he didn't take over the church his father was still in control right he was just running out from the um, very background. much in control mm-hmm. uh, and my my ex was overwhelmed by it he never could handle it and from the day that he took it till the day that I walked out he was one of the most miserable people I have ever seen I cannot even describe to you the torment he lived in it, it was just it was awful well, the change only- in him I can only imagine um, you actually said something like this in your statement, which I think is a really poignant phrase, but you said abusers must abuse. And I can only imagine that if he was, if there was abuse from Bud Calvert toward you, that you weren't an isolated anomaly, you know, someone who. No. Oh no. Comfortable quickly abusing someone. I'm, I'm assuming that there was, abuse toward his wife, abuse there toward his to be. son. I don't know. Toward... And I may never know, right. but I know toward his son and his wife, there has to be. Right. And I mean, who knows who else? And that's why I'm speaking out because I know there are others. There's no question. So can you talk to me about your, your daughter's wedding and what was going through your mindset? So you were, I mean, how old was your daughter when she got married? She was, oh, let me think. She had graduated college. That was in 2015, so she would have been huh, 23. Okay, 23. So 
so you had been living in this for 25, 26 years? Give or take, yes. What was it with her wedding and around that period where you finally were saying enough is enough and and this is the time it's to It's multifaceted, so buckle up. Here we go. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. So um, I was a family slave, of course. I was, and my children were taught this. It's not their fault, but I existed to make everybody else's life better. I wasn't right. a person. I was constantly told I was nothing. And they were, you know, they would laugh about my not having a college degree. And that's why the church, of course, didn't pay me to do anything I did because I was unqualified. And there are standards here. We have, this is an institution. I was nothing and my children knew it and they treated me accordingly. So her wedding, of course, which should have been a joyful, wonderful event, I was treated like the redheaded stepchild. Of course, the in-laws came back and they were the center of attention, even at the rehearsal they were on the center of the platform directing things and doing things. I was sitting down, you know, on the first or second row, just trying to stay out of the way and, and just so anxious. I can't even describe to you the anxiety. So I was the one who fixed all the decorations, got everything ready for the reception and did all of those things for my daughter because I love her, packed up her room so that when she got back from her honeymoon, everything was there for her to take. But I attended her wedding. I went to the reception. I did all of those things. And my ex and his parents didn't speak to me, didn't look at me, didn't talk to me, treated me like a disease. And I went home from that. Of course, my family weren't there. We had sent them invitations. I have my brother has passed away. He passed away when he was 42. But I have a sister and I have parents. And I, of course, they received invitations and said, we will never put ourselves in a position to be subjected to the Calvert's mistreatment ever again. So no, we can't come. But I got home from the wedding and I was so broken and I was so hurt that I called my parents and I said, I want you to tell me, and I was crying, I was, I was beside myself, why you can't love me, your daughter, enough to swallow what you've got to swallow and be here. And they said, look, we've been subjected to those people's mistreatment. We cannot do that again. And after I hung up the phone with my parents, I knew I couldn't deal with it anymore. I had had all I could take, and it was going to kill me. And at that point, Eric, I was menopausal. I was anemic. I was very ill. And a lot of it was because I was being abused. Right. I didn't know that at the time. But, of course, I had seen my doctor multiple times, and he said, you need to have a hysterectomy. You need to take care of yourself. You're not well. And he knew I wasn't well, and he begged me to take antidepressants, which I did. And I had scheduled a hysterectomy at the age of 42. Um, I had determined that I was going to take care of myself. And if it meant I had to leave, I was going to leave. And that day I decided I have, I'm, I'm finished. I can't deal with this anymore. Right. So after I hung up the phone with my parents, I called the physician who had been my doctor at the time of my accident who had, of course, signed the restraining order and done all of those things. And I asked him to tell me the truth. And I told him what my ex had told me, which, of course, he already knew. Right. And he said, you're not going to want to hear this, but your parents are telling you the truth. And I said, thank you. That's all I need to hear. And when my ex came home that day, I looked him in the eye and I said, I want you to tell me the truth. What really happened 20 years ago and he looked at me and these were his exact words I'm your husband who are you going to believe 
And I looked at him and I said, I'm going to believe the truth. And that was the end of the conversation. And we never spoke about it again, but I made up my mind that very day, that was the day of my daughter's wedding, that I was finished and the marriage was over. And in my heart and my mind, that's the day it ended. And up until this point, I know you said you you were just kind of putting your head down, pushing through for your kids, but was this the first time that you actually to yourself admitted like this is a problem or is it the first time that you felt? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because always up until that point, I have a very vital, healthy prayer life. And I would spend at least an hour every morning pacing, drinking coffee and praying, Lord, if you can fix this, if you can change him, if you can change this, please, please, Jesus, please. I stopped praying that way. And I knew this is broken and it's not going to be fixed. I have to, I have to, do something different. I can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. These people are abusers. They're liars. My husband had lied to me. And once I found that lie, Eric, of what, who got the restraining order and what was said and done, it was a mountain of lies. Once I found the first one, they just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. Everything was a lie. My whole life was a lie. The finances, the church, everything was a lie. I definitely want to talk about what the process was after leaving and the, and the, the road of recovery, you know, <laughs> mentally and, and, and mm-hmm. working through all of this. But I, I do think it's important to touch on the actual separation and the amount oh. of the, probably the, the, I mean, the amount of abuse that your ex put you through during that divorce process. Can you, can you share a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I reached out to girlfriends that I knew had also incidentally been abused by the Calverts and had had to leave and they're, you know, had moved on to live other lives and just started asking questions and trying to educate myself. You can't imagine how isolated and naive and just plain dumb about life I was because all I did was go to church and take care of my family and do what I was told to do. And I just, I knew nothing about anything else, anything else. So I began educating myself and I finally went to an attorney and I filed for divorce because I was abused and I knew I was abused. I'd been raped. I'd been sexually molested by my father-in-law, treated like a slave by not just my my husband and his family, but by the church as well. So I filed for divorce, but I asked that that the papers not be issued until after Christmas because even then I couldn't mess everybody else's life up. I filed for divorce on December the 22nd, but I knew I needed to get through Christmas. There were all these things going on, you know, the church activities. And I thought, you know what, if they serve the papers on January the 5th, then we can get through all of this and I won't mess everything up for everybody else. So on January the 5th, the papers were served and they were on the door and my ex's reaction was to call our children and have our children come and attack their mother, which they did. I I just couldn't believe it. Here came my newly married daughter and her husband and sat at our table where my husband put the Bible in the middle of the table and preached at me and pointed at me and yelled at me. There was never any repentance. There was never any brokenness. There was never any, have I done? How did I hurt you? Never. And to this day, there isn't. And they all left and went to a ball game at the school. And while they were gone, I called my mother and I said, mom, I have to get out of here. I cannot stay here. And so I packed enough clothes for a couple of days, my makeup, and a friend of my mother's picked me up and we booked tickets on the way to the airport on our phones. And that was 
that was when I left. So he he pretty much had the kids and everybody under his his grip as well. Just, oh, absolutely. And right. his father under his father's grip. Right. He's scared uh, to death of his father. Right. And Bud uh, didn't waste. I, I don't think it was even a week, and he was back in Fairfax pastoring the church. Wow. Um, I was in Knox. I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, at my parents' home. I lived there for seven months. He never came. He didn't call me. He didn't ever want to reconcile. In fact, I at one point came back to get some more clothes to get my music, which I can't live without my music. So I had to come back and get it. And I drove my van back. And in the interim of seven months is a long time, the tags went dead on the, on the van. I needed the title. He would not, would not send me the title. Of course, all this time, he, he froze the bank accounts. He cut off all the credit cards. I had nothing. And that's the way he wanted it. He wouldn't send me the title. And he and a pastor friend of his came to Chattanooga to, they demanded a board meeting with the organization that my father worked for at the time to try and get him fired because he was harboring his wicked daughter. And they were allowed to have that meeting, by the way. And while he was in town, miles, miles from the home where I was staying and had been for months, he did not come over there. He did not bring the title to the car. He didn't try to see me. He didn't try to talk to me. Nothing. They flew in, had their meeting, and flew out. And I had to pay a lawyer to threaten him to get the title to a car that I eventually you know, had to have sold and towed away because it wasn't worth anything. It has just been ugly from start to finish. And it's still ugly to this day, I will tell you. I'm still missing having to deal with him. It's, it's not fun. How is all this explained to the church? Because there's obviously a massive stigma around divorce and things like that. How I'm assuming, because it, I don't think it would take a, a rocket scientist to assume this, that you weren't portrayed in the best light to the congregation. Oh, no. They said that I was having an affair. I was out of my mind because I just had a hysterectomy. That, you know, I had that head injury all those years ago and I was crazy. All the things basically that they had done to me and that, that Bud is guilty of doing they accused me of, which is, is common for abusers. No, I was not portrayed in a good light at all. And there was never any, any effort at reconciliation ever. Did um, anyone in the church reach out to you out of the congregation or did everybody pretty much um, take it at face value? I received one phone call. I had been gone about two weeks. And a deacon and his wife, who the wife had been a dear friend of mine, I taught their daughter piano, and she and I, had, the wife and I had been good friends, you know, lots of coffees and um, times together. They called me one time, and their comment to me in that conversation was, wow, you really sound good. I did. I sounded free. I was, for the first time, able to say what I wanted to say and think what I wanted to think, but they never called me again. And I never heard from them. In fact, after seven months of living with my parents, I had to move back to Virginia because um, we were given joint custody of our daughter. I had no choice. It was cruel and horrible, but I had to come back to Burke. Um, And I lived two miles from FBT and no one ever came to see me. In fact, if I would run into people, which of course I did, I ran into church members all the time and Walmart and whatever, um, they would turn their backs and walk the other way. Wow. So, so I kind of want to shift into your, you know, your 
your life after moving um, and kind of, I mean, obviously you've come to recognize how unhealthy so much of this was, um, but what's been, what's been the process of kind of reclaiming your life, you know, recovery, um, however you want to phrase it, your, your journey to just kind of find, find actual peace and, and joy after the fact of all of this, all of these horrific events. Learning that uh, and knowing something I've always known in my head, but I didn't know in my heart that God's in that, but the rules, the rules that were put on me by men are just that, that Jesus is all I need. When I moved to Burke, of course, I had, I had to find a place to live. I had to, to buy furnishings and do things. My ex just fought with me about everything I took from our home. So I finally just threw it in the floor and said, look, just give me my clothes, my piano and my music and I'm out of here. So the Lord was so good to me. And I had a friend at the time who played in a church in Fairfax. It's a Baptist church, but it is not an IFB church, incidentally. And she also played in a high school. Well, she was moving to Texas to take a post at a school and needed to be replaced in both places. So I took those jobs. I'm now a member of that church, which they do enormous community outreach. It's a small congregation, but it's a truly blessed, godly congregation that serve the Lord, love one another. And I have found such peace and growth there and a family of people who just love one another. We just last night, my husband and I went to serve dinner to the Alcoholics Anonymous group that meets in our church every week, twice a year in the spring and in the fall. We feed them dinner when they come for their meeting. And we did that last night. FBT never did that. Not one time. There was no community outreach. Everything was inward. So I started that job. I played at a school um, full time in one school, which I no longer do. But while I was there, I met a wonderful building engineer who was the guy who fixed everything in the building and made sure everything was okay. And he would come down to the music hall and leave roses on my keyboard, which I would find in the morning when I went to work or leave a coffee on my desk. And um, he is now my husband. So you got to experience someone actually showing you care and love instead of being responsible to make someone else. And I still do. Well, and you know, Eric, the churches I play in my church, which I'm a member of, and I also play in another church on Saturday evenings. They have a, there's another church in the community that has a Saturday evening service for people who want a quiet worship and aren't up to the Sunday morning big service. And I go and play for them on Saturdays. Then I play for my church on Sunday. And in both places, I have been embraced. I have been loved. Of course, I'm compensated and salaried, but I am appreciated and every week. And I mean, that never happened one time where I was for 25 years. And yes, my husband babies me, puts gas in my car, wouldn't let me, won't let me lift a finger. um, (laughs) And it's just kind. And I told him that's what drew me to him. That's what made me fall in love with him was just his kindness. I looked in his eyes the first time and I saw a kind man. And I'd never known someone like that before. And I still, I wake up every day and I just can't believe it. That's so awesome. So, so what what would you say to someone who maybe is where you were at just a few years ago and 
is sitting in the pew of an abusive ministry or even sitting in a abusive relationship, what, what would be your advice to them? Because there is, there's so many people who don't feel they have the, the capacity to leave. They don't feel that they have the liberty to. to well, and Eric, I was told constantly, and it was, it was on purpose. I now realize reminded that I had no degree reminded that I was nothing, that I could never make it on my own. Those are not the words of a loving savior. My savior got down in the dirt with people who were immoral and wicked and he loved on them and he met their needs where they were. And I'm learning that that is not God's plan for any of us. He wants us not only to have life, but to have it abundantly. And anyone who is being abused needs to get out. And there are places and there are people who will help us. And I'm in a church that loves me, that cares for me, that would never, ever let anyone else hurt me. Um, and it was just so scary though. It was like stepping over a cliff because I, I couldn't imagine what was going to happen. And of course, my biggest fear was my children. And there was a, there was a rather prolonged time where I didn't hear from any of them. And that was, that was death-like for me. Any mother will tell you that not hearing from your children is probably the worst kind of abuse that you can endure. But I have learned waiting and letting the Lord work and just letting people see what's real. Time has fixed a lot of that because they see their dad for what he is because that's what he is. They see me for what I am because it's the truth. Um, And I don't have to say anything. Yeah, the truth really has nowhere to hide. After a certain amount of time, it's going to reveal itself. So I think that's really good because I think it could be you know, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think it could be easy to, you know, to leave and then still have that over your head of like, I have a responsibility to fix everything. I have a responsibility. No, and I can't. And you know, there are things, there are things in relationships and in situations that will probably never be right because so much was messed up for so long. But even that I'm learning to give it to the Lord and to realize he doesn't expect me to fix it. He expects me to trust him and to go on. And he's given me the ability to do that. That's awesome. Um, our, our youngest daughter chose to live with her father because, of course, he's a bully and he bullied her and bribed her. But after she was with him for two years, she changed her mind. And she is now with me and she's flourishing. She's healthy. She's, she's just doing so well. And I'm so thankful. So that's just a small little victory, but it is a victory and it's, it's, it's tangible and something that I can see and say, Lord, you, you are working, you are doing what I can't do. That's awesome. Um, so I, I end every show with the same question and I'm curious to hear your perspective. Do you feel that there's hope for the independent Federal Baptist movement as a whole, or do you think that it is, you know, broken from the start? and needs to be put to rest. What's your position as far as the, the actual IFB movement? I will say this. I am a Baptist by conviction. My doctrine and my heart, that's what I believe. But having said that, I believe that it is a perfect foil and hiding place for abusers because there is ins- there's no accountability 
the reason my father-in-law could do what he did to me was because no one asked him anything. No one expected anything of him. He was the ultimate boss. Hmm. And that is flawed and that is a problem. And I don't think that model can survive because we are, as humans, desperately wicked. The Bible says so. No, I don't. Do I think that the doctrine should change? No, but the practice of it and the way the churches are run, no, it's not helping. Yeah, that lack of accountability really fosters an environment where abusers can thrive. Oh, they absolutely can thrive and they can, they can manipulate, they can bully. It's, it's not, it's just not okay. I, I really appreciate you sharing all that. And, and um, is there, is there anything else you'd like to say to the audience that's listening? Um, I mean, I think you've covered so much so well. Um, is there anything else that, that comes to mind that you'd like to share or encourage people with? No, just to say that, that I am not bitter. I'm not angry. And I'm not even hurt anymore. I'm healing and I'm fine. But I, I want to see other people break free from this. And that, you know, to me, it's the ultimate evil to do wicked things in the name of religion and the name of God. My God has nothing to do with any of these works of darkness. Right. And to beg survivors to please, please get the help that you need. Talk to someone because there are people who will believe you and will help you. Yeah, I know it's, I know I've had a couple guests mention that, that they wish they would have known sooner that there was something outside of where they were because there is a lot of unknown. When you're in it, when you're in it, you can't imagine that that's not the whole wide world. You just think that's right. it. And it isn't, it isn't. And there are good, godly, wonderful people. Well, I told you my church that I play for on Sunday mornings, we just served the Alcoholics Anonymous dinner last night when they came to their meeting. Eric, it was one of the most lovely experiences. We had a lovely time cooking that dinner together and serving those people and showing them the love of Jesus. And it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't, you know, there weren't crowds and throngs, but we, we were the hands of Jesus to those people in that moment. And it was, it was just, it was a beautiful thing for me. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Becky, for joining me for the yeah. show and for sharing your story. I know it's not not necessarily pleasant to have to, to rehash all of those things that happened, but I really appreciate you taking the time. And I know that there's somebody listening that needs to hear this, whether it's someone who has a family member that, you know, they need to identify something's happening that maybe absolutely or, you know, like you said, before the call, and I think even on the call, whether it's someone who, you know, is experiencing the exact same thing that you went through and needs that extra bit of courage or the, you know, just that permission to speak out. And I think that this episode is going to be really helpful to a lot of people. So thank you so much for, for your time and for absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.